Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We're Nitty in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 138, recorded on October the 30th, 2020. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We have a lot to cover today, and uh, among the highlights, I should say, is the Microsoft earnings. We have some new cool things in Synapse. The Windows Server Summit 2020 just concluded. Microsoft Teams has a few users per day. And there are some small but pretty important usability improvements in, in Power BI. And depending on how much time we have, we have a few more things on the list. So let's dive straight in to uh, Microsoft earnings. They are way higher than my earnings. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, and it's not often I do say this, but in this case, they have earned more than you have, and they have deserved it. <laughs> uh, still, people, people, I know you're all asking, who was that just talking? It's Simon. However, he is sick, so that's why he has this, you know, roasty, bassy voice, uh, which is not common for him otherwise. Just to no. put it out there. Yeah. And and with that, let's look into the actual numbers. So this is the Q1 earnings from Microsoft, where they had a revenue of $37.2 billion in total. And that is up 12%. So I would bet that apart from... Um, medicine-related companies, Microsoft is probably one of the most successful companies during COVID. And please don't quote me on that, but um, they, they are increasing a lot in all categories, apart from one, which is quite interesting, but we'll get back to that. So those $37.2 billion is divided between um, commercial cloud, um, Intel, or sorry, Productivity and business processes, intelligent cloud, and more personal computing. And um, as far as I can tell, the biggest in percent increase in revenue is the Azure revenue growth. Uh, and I would say that that's due to a higher usage of infrastructure as a service. That would be my guess. And a lot of that probably comes from Windows Virtual Desktop. Uh, we also see an increase in Xbox, not a surprise there as well, based on where we are. But it's quite interesting to see that it's actually increased 30% Q1 with uh, the upcoming releases of the Xbox One X. Is that the correct? Xbox Series, series X series and X. Xbox Series S. <laughs> and also Surface Revenue is up 37%. So what would be your guess that they are losing or have a lower revenue in? Um, not really sure. I'm racking my brains and I can't figure anything out. No. Maybe client. Yeah. Windows OEM revenue. <laughs> Since people aren't paying as much for Windows anymore, they are probably adding that to other business areas. So since you are mostly paying for Microsoft Defender for endpoints rather than paying for Windows, 
it's obvious that you would earn less from Windows. And the second thing, what what would be the the most obvious thing that no one wants to use from Microsoft? Office. Oh, come on. <laughs> Teams. <laughs> I may we may have a news item later on that would contradict that. Well, just because they have a lot of users doesn't mean they want to be there. That's also very true, but no one no one wants to use Microsoft Bing. So uh, search advertising revenue is down 10%. <laughs> like that's a big surprise to anyone, actually. Also, we have an increase in LinkedIn, so that's actually paying off now that acquisition. So what conclusions and then what should we think about this? Yeah, we obviously see where Microsoft is focusing their sales efforts as well and where the uh, benefits, possible benefits at least, uh, would be. And that is cloud computing and additional services. Uh, and I always find it interesting to follow along in, in, these, in, the, in the revenues because it's, it's showing, in my opinion, that Microsoft is gaining momentum and you can always discuss if that is for good or for bad but based on the things we will talk about in just a few seconds um, i would say that they will continue to drive revenue across all of their all of their business areas i'm curious to know if the other cloud vendors show a similar increase in revenue when it comes to um to well to the cloud stuff considering the way the world behaves these days that would be interesting i don't know if if amazon or ibm or google have posted their earnings yet and if so i probably need to dive into them in order to find that information but it's definitely something to discuss in a future episode and also uh, just to reflect on that i believe amazon actually opened their swedish uh, store this week yeah they did yeah, and apparently there were some horrible translation issues as well. We we can get back to that later in this episode, possibly. And I would only say that I have my first Amazon.se parcel waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a huge cock? <laughs> you could say so. It's an Elgato multi-mount. There we go. All right, so let's move on. I think I've told you about Azure Synapse Analytics a few times. And Synapse Analytics is this horrible uh, marketing name because the only thing that Synapse Analytics is, is the old Azure Data Warehouse. But we also have Azure Synapse Analytics Workspaces, and that is in preview. And maybe we're going to see a generally available um, version of this at, at early next year, but we don't know right now. But the thing with the Synapse um, workspaces and more importantly, the the Synapse Studio is that this is where you have an integrated platform to do everything from um, working with with your your data. You can integrate your data using Azure Data Factory. You have a few compute engines. Uh, For instance, you have the, um, the SQL pool on demand. You have the Spark pool and you can visualize your data. Everything can be done inside of the Synapse Studio. But Synapse Studio has had a bit of a hurdle to get started with. And right now, or I should say on the 22nd, about a week ago, uh, the new Knowledge Center was opened in Synapse Studio. And the Knowledge Center is basically 
uh, set of preloaded sample data and, and tips and tricks how to get started in Azure Synapse Analytics. This might not sound like very much, but I think this is going to be the, the last hurdle, so to speak, to get people to start working with this environment because Synapse is enormous. I think that Microsoft is pretty much betting the farm on Synapse going forward. So I'm super curious to see where it's going to end up. And and who should then use Synapse? And second question would be, who are they competing with? If they are betting it all on Synapse, what are they trying to beat? Good question. The, the first question, who should use Synapse? Well, right now, very few people, because it is in preview and it has, um, let's just say a few bugs and some, some limitations. But there's nothing in Synapse that you could not pretty much build with other bits and pieces of Azure. But the, the whole point here is that it is um, connected, it's, it's integrated. But going forward, the answer is everyone, because Synapse will be the, the core data environment, if you will. You're going to have all the bits and pieces when it comes to data inside of Synapse. So it, it's definitely going to change stuff. So who are you competing with? Well, back in the day, we had the Azure Data Lake Storage and Azure Data Lake Analytics. Azure Data Lake Analytics quietly died to nobody's sadness. And Azure Data Lake Storage is now version 2. But since Microsoft did not have a viable analytics engine, um, like we, well, they do have Hadoop, but that's very much manual work. They decided to partner with Databricks, which is a managed Spark system with so much more. And that is part, or I should say that is available as part of Azure. With Synapse, you have a direct competitor to Spark because Synapse contains the original Apache Spark engine. Databricks is, a, is an extension of the Apache Spark engine. So that's probably who they're competing against. And that is going to be an interesting fight for sure. Cool. I just wanted to add to our previous question that uh, Mark, Amazon's revenue were in line with, in, in terms of growth with Microsoft. They also beat their expectations. And guess what? They increased the revenue in advertising. <laughs> So they are not advertising in Bing. Is that what you're saying? No. Excellent. <laughs> Makes sense. So, Tony, you you were at first very disappointed with the Windows Server Summit yesterday, and then something happened. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, because, I mean, the first, like, two-thirds or something was pretty much just, like, repetition from Ignite, things like that. You know, things we already knew about. Um, <clears throat> uh, Jeff Woolz even showed, you know, pretty much how to upgrade your 2012 R2 domain controllers to 2016 or 2019. Uh, pretty much like hi on high level and also in detail, pretty much. So that that was a humongous dis disappointment just to, you know try to see the summit for 2020. What's the news? What's, what's coming up? What is happening? But then, you know, in the last, I think it was actually the last session, uh, well, uh, Woolsey and Nerdpile uh, did their own session. 
they had a lot of interesting updates coming up. Uh, mostly involving, you know, Windows Admin Center, of course, because every innovation is pretty much happening there right now. So they actually did an update on that you can now do NetApp or DFSR migration with storage migration to Windows, which was pretty huge news, because uh, that has been pretty much of a pain previously. So if you can do that with a few clicks in Windows Admin Center, that's that's progress, I'd say. Um, that was a lot of words. What does that mean? Well, previously, if you like to migrate, you know, a NetApp file share to Windows or anything else, you had to pretty much use like RoboCopy or some other like custom tool to copy the files and you know, make sure that everything gets over properly. So now you can do this in pretty much admin center uh, with storage migration uh, extension instead. So it's just a few clicks instead of doing like, you know, I don't know, weeks or months even of different kind of testing and stuff. So a few clicks, it's done. What can be your target in Azure? Can you net, uh, migrate a NetApp file share to a NetApp files? They may have a, a known tool for that, of course, but... Uh, Azure files. Azure in that case. Okay. Of course, of course. So that's also possible with the new admin center tool. So, yeah. Do you know if it is resumable? Uh, I don't think they covered that in the demo, but I'm expecting it to be, absolutely. And also, speaking of Azure files, they also showed something called uh, SMB over Quick. Quick is something I've never heard of before, but the demo they showed was pretty much like you... You are trying to map a SMB share over the internet to your Azure environment. And it said, nope, that's not possible. This is SMB. You're trying to communicate over 445 uh, TCP. So no, not allowed. However, when they did the second run, the uh, protocol actually recognized that, okay, this is SMB over quick, whatever quick is. Like I said, I've never heard of that before. Uh, but that meant that it was actually uh, connecting to a file share in Azure over TLS, securely from anywhere on the planet. So, very cool stuff there as well. And I will need to read up on that, exactly how that works. And uh, I will post the announcement blog for that from March this year, actually. Uh, okay, I'll add it to our Yes. That's then, like six months ago. Yeah, because they are already using this technology for Edge, as an example. I wasn't aware okay. of it. But cool. to, to simplify things, like you say, you can map a file share in Azure over port 443 and yep. have that a secure communication channel to it without requiring VPN, as an example. Yeah, exactly. So th- that was the whole point. And yeah, it looked really cool since it doesn't really need any changes to the client as well. So it it just works out of the box pretty much. I can see so many bad use cases for this as well. <laughs> <laughs> so even though it's brilliant and it will solve a lot of things, I, I'm 
seeing yeah. a possible data exfiltration path here. Yeah, why just not use OneDrive instead, pretty much. Yeah. So SMB compression. So, you know, still using SMB as a file share, file service. Uh, compression has been around for a while, I suppose. Uh, however, now they demonstrated that you can actually use that with, for example, Robocopy. So just add slash compression to ro your Robocopy command. Uh, and that pretty much, I suppose, it cut down the copy uh, faction from 2 minutes 13 to like 12 seconds or something like that. Just for the demo, that was like an ISO file. Uh, but then, you know, Ned Pyle said that this will become, you know, the default for everything file copy moving forward. So using Explorer just to copy-paste stuff, it will always use the compression algorithm moving forward. It kind of makes sense. We have way more CPU than we have storage performance and, and yeah. most importantly, networking performance. Yeah. Cool. And um, speaking of Teams, there's a lot of people on Teams. Not that we want to, but we are here. I think it's like, what, 100 million plus or something? 115 million daily active users. That is a lot of despair. <laughs> so, so come on, <laughs> where would you rather be than Teams? In, anywhere. Anywhere but okay. Teams. I, I'm not following at all, but we we have seen, a, to quote a certain president, a tremendous growth in um, Teams usage, especially over the year. It's it's basically doubled every half year. So just before summer, they had 75 million active users, and now we're up to 115 million active users. And for the ones who who are good at math, I know that's not double and not even close but it's a, incre a huge increase. Also remember that Teams isn't really the preferred platform for consumer use yet. So 115 million active users are probably commercial users. Well, most most of them, I suppose. But isn't like Teams a free platform as well for home users? Yeah, it is, it is. But that, that's all the platforms. So here we again have the interesting question. How have Zoom improved or increased the usage? How have other platforms increased their usage? And I would be surprised if they weren't, if not on pair, probably very close to the same amount. Since I don't know about you, but I tend to use Zoom at least once a week. Why? I work with organizations that for some reason prefer Don't Zoom. like security. Uh, you could claim <laughs> that. I have at least two at least two organizations that I work with on a regular basis that prefers Zoom. I also, and hang in there now, had my first Google Meetup meeting two weeks ago. Oh, and that was... Oh, uh, what now? A Google Meet or whatever they are called. And that, <laughs> my friends were a horrible experience. I don't doubt it. No, but I, I think you're quite right. Everybody has seen an uptick in number of users. 
And uh, it, it's not like we magically got 100 million more users of the internet overnight just because the, the world ended. So they did come from somewhere and suddenly they are no longer in the same meeting room. So they need to go do meeting on online instead. Uh, and it would also be interesting to know how much have each platform improved over the years? How many new features, how, how they have they increased security and such and see if if they are comparable there as well. Now, Zoom started off very much after Teams and I may be slightly biased here, but it would be interesting to see how much they have improved as well because I can see the improvements made to Teams much clearer than I can see the possible improvements made to Zoom. Yeah, and there, there are two sides to that too. I mean, one is the side that you see the usability enhancements, the the new features, and then is the side that you do not see what happens underneath the covers. And I'm pretty sure that they are not asleep at the wheel when it comes to developing the engineering side of both Teams and Zoom and anything. Just surviving the onslaught in March, that is nothing short of heroic. I must add a quite interesting aspect of this. Um, a journalist, I believe, asked Jeff Tepper, Tepper, who is head of Teams, how they are counting those active users, because he claimed that an auto-started Teams isn't an active user, but they are actually only counting intentional usage. So when you have a meeting, when you do use the chat feature, when you do something actively in Teams, which makes it even more impressive. You know, intentional Teams usage, there are so many things that I could say about that because there are so many people that intend to work but completely fail at it. So yeah, I'll, I'll just leave that there. And speaking of intention, when small improvements, small usability improvements happen, they have a huge impact. So quite some time ago, we got what is known as the certified and, and promoted data flows. I think you remember that, which means that I can put a, a tag on a Power BI data flow that yes, this is certified or yes, this is promoted, easier for the users to find. Then we got that for the data sets as well. And that was a huge thing because most of the time your users are going to be connecting to the data sets and not necessarily to the data flows themselves. But what we just got actually yesterday was that you can now do certified and promoted reports and apps inside of Power BI. And that is going to give way more tools for any organization rolling out or working with Power BI. So it's a small, small change that really, really does a big thing. And another small thing that potentially is enormous is the update to Power BI Published to Web. Because Published to Web is this... Um, two-sided sword, if you will, because on one side, it is the only way that you can share data to the entire world without having to pay for the entire world having an, a license or going premium. But on the other side, it is also the way that you share data to the entire world. So you do not want to do that unless you know exactly what you're doing. But take, for instance, the, um, the medical regions in Sweden, they are tracking the spread of COVID and a lot of them are using Power BI to display this information to um, to citizens. You have um, a new dialogue that makes it easier to do this. And since this is running on a shared platform, a shared um, infrastructure, 
you might find yourself in a situation where your report is so heavy that it, well, it's not going to break anything, but it's going to get throttled. And now you have the ability to create your own, oops, this is kind of under pressure image. And if you're smart, you take your report, take a screenshot of it, and then you add, this report is not interactive right now due to capacity issues. So that means that people see that, ah, something is is not working exactly as intended. So I think I have three questions, if I can remember all three of them. So I will begin with the one I come up with last. Remind me again, the difference between a report and a dashboard, are you able to interact with the uh, published the, the published to web reports? Good question. So the difference is that a report is based off a number of tiles where you have visuals. So for instance, a bar chart or a line chart, that is a tile. Yep. Then you pick or choose your, your tiles and create a dashboard of those tiles. And whenever you click on a dashboard, you're going to be taken to the report. To answer your question, yes, you can interact with them, both both the dashboards and the reports with the published web. Yeah. So if you were to place that image with the, the text on top, you would it, it would be better. This is what you would see, but it would still be something you can't interact with. Correct. It's a static image. Second part, going back to um, this certified and promoted reports and apps, would you say that the promoted and certified apps and reports are more aimed towards people that are only consuming data, or is it still the data analytics persons that would have the use of those? No, the reports and dashboards are probably um, aimed towards the end users, while the data sets and the data flows are more for the analytical users. But a good distinction. Yeah. C can anyone promote or certify a report or an app? No. Uh, you need to be uh, given the privilege. And there are two steps. I mean, for the, it's easy to give people the privilege to promote stuff. That's, that's one part. But the other part is the certified. And there, there's nothing underneath the certified. It's up to you to create that workspace, so to speak, or uh, that workflow. But it is geared toward a serious certification. But again, there's nothing underneath it. So it's another privilege. Yeah, so promote is basically like. Yeah. And certified is I do this. And since I'm the one who are able to put the stamp certified on, you can count on this to be the certified and verified. Exactly. And the last question, uh, and that's even covered in the blog post. Remember to only share data that your organization allows you to share publicly. So how much could I, in theory, get access to if I were to publish to web? Would I be able to review the full data set or how much would I actually see? Would it only be the visualization or would I somehow have access to the data set? You would have access to the reports or the visuals. Yeah. Uh, but depending on how the report is built, you might be able to get access to some parts of the underlying data set, but not the data set entire, no. No. But it is a huge uh, risk for, for leaking data, definitely. Can, can anyone publish to web or 
it depends on your your admin settings. My tip: oh, come turn on. that off. We 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 need to do that securing your data session at some point because this is Pandora's box in terms of data security and exfiltration. It could be. It could be indeed. All right, we are running out of time, as we always are. There are a few upcoming events, and um, Simon seems bored again. <laughs> I, I, my, I, by mistake, happen to arrange a conference next year. Uh, or it, it's really Patrick Keller, um, Vivid Logics. Yeah, and a few user groups as well. Yeah, that as well, but we'll get back to those. Patrick Keller and uh, I, uh, we are arranging WVD TechFest. 25th of February next year, which uh, we see as the prime WVD event of the year. So we will continue on the year of the w- year of WVD, and we have an amazing speaker lineup confirmed already, and we'll be continuing to add new speakers over time. There is also a call for sessions out, and uh, we hope to be able to do some quite interesting things in in. This, despite it being a virtual conference. So stay tuned for more announcements and please submit your sessions if you are open to speaking on any topic for WVD. And then we have the two user groups I'm also part of arranging. The first one, which uh, will be taking place November the 3rd, is, is arranged by me, Alexander, and our friend Johan Dalbom, the East Sweden Microsoft user group. We uh, will be talking about static Azure web pages. And uh, the last speaker remains to be found at this point. So we'll hopefully have someone else to speak uh, when this episode is released. And the third one is the Swedish WVD user group, which will have our second meetup on November 11th, uh, where Jim Moyle will be part of it too on how to optimize FS logics. There we go. As always, a lot of stuff, and as always, a lot of stuff that we leave on the floor because we could not get to it. So I think we have some to go for the next episode. And on that, we're completely full, and it is time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Knee Deep in Tech. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com. We will be back next week. And meanwhile... Take care. Bye. Bye. Goodbye, AMD Radeon.